100 revisions, that's incredible. What is that about? Is that uh, the customer coming back and saying, no, it's uh, too spicy, no, it's not spicy enough, now it's too salty, now we got to change the cost structure? What you know? What causes 100 revisions? So it's a uh, part of that, uh, all of that actually, especially internally with the customer. Then once you uh, once you get get a product that internally the customer likes, you know they'll go through taste panels or uh, surveys and and things like that. So that can throw a whole new ball in the game. You know once you've been on that that many revisions and it goes to a market test or a taste panel and they get feedback and maybe it doesn't test as well as they thought it would test, well, then you're back to the drawing board again. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today, I'm excited to have as a guest, Nick Landry, who is culinary development chef at Southeastern Mills. Nick is a professional chef and food innovator. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, I appreciate y'all having me this morning. Yeah. So why don't we get to get started? Why don't you give our listeners background on your personal journey, how you got started in the food industry and what got you involved with food innovation? Okay. Well, uh, it's crazy to think at the end of this year, I'll be starting my uh, 15th year in the food business. Uh, Ten of those years uh, have been on the uh, research and development side. So it's been a uh, great journey, you know, growing up. Uh, that's about the only thing I can see myself doing is being a chef. And uh, I wasn't sure which way the uh, career path would take me. And um, so, of course, went to culinary school at uh, the John Paul's Culinary Institute in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And um, over there, we had to do uh, two externships for the uh, Bachelor of Science program. So my first externship, um, I did it at uh, the Ritz-Carlton in St. Thomas. Nice. And then my sec- second one, I uh, did it at uh, the Westchester Country Club in Rye, New York. Also pretty so, nice. Uh, yeah, so that's where I kind of got my uh, feet wet in, in kitchens. And uh, I worked through kitchens throughout college. And uh, right after culinary school, um, had a job offer at a hotel in New Orleans and uh, the same day I um, uh, got a job offer and uh, turned in a notice on the same day because the uh, chef in New York was asking me what was holding me back in Louisiana. I said, honestly, nothing. And he says, well, okay, come back and move up here. I want you back at the country club. So I did that and um, spent about three and a half years there and worked my way up all the way to a restaurant chef of the fine dining restaurant. And um, if you're not familiar with Westchester Country Club, is a uh, platinum ranked country club in Rye, New York, and uh, hosted the uh, Barclays and the Buick Classic for many years on the PGA Tour. So I got to meet a lot of the uh, professional golfers and uh, work under a uh, certified master chef, which was amazing. And then, uh, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to be next. And uh, a buddy of mine was in R&D down in Louisiana, and I was trying to get back to warmer weather. And uh, so I uh, landed my first R&D job um, back in culinary school. Nobody really mentioned uh, research and development chefs or corporate chefs. And um, I tested that for about three months, and I was like, man, I do not know if this is really what I want to be in. He says, just stick it out. I know it's not the hard pace that you're used to. And so I stuck it out and, you know, after about four or five more months 
or four or five months into it, I said, well, thanks for uh, converting me to this side of the industry. And ever since then, I've been uh, sold to it. So, well, what, 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 what was it about the transition? You just didn't like being on the bench as opposed to being in the kitchen? Yeah, it was similar, you know, um, you know, it, uh, being on the bench is, com- uh, you know, kind of like, uh, prepping throughout the day, but then you, you build that, uh, self-esteem and that adrenaline for the, uh, the night rush just to get your butt kicked on the, on the hotline, you know, hmm. and see that, see the tickets go to the ground. And I, I, that's what I, that's what I live for. And that was like the, the rush I'd always loved. And, uh, just, so it was a little bit, uh, slower pace till you got involved uh, a little bit more involved on the R and D side. So you, you said you always knew that you wanted, how, how old were you when you knew that you wanted to get into, you know, cooking and innovation? I'd say my uh, early elementary years, you know, uh, wow. anywhere from uh, 10 to 12. Um, I just wasn't, uh, there was nothing else I can really see myself doing other than being in the kitchen. You know, I was always, Growing up with uh, grandparents uh, that loved to cook and family that uh, loved to cook, and that, that's where my true passion was. So being involved in both the uh, restaurant and the uh, CPG side of the food industry, what, uh, you know, Nick, what do you think uh, makes each challenging in its own right? I would say, you know, uh, just um, meet, meeting goals and expectations on uh, both sides of the industry, you know, uh, from the restaurant side you you know you're you're meeting uh goals uh whether it's uh covers a night uh budgets um you know inventory maintaining that and on the uh on the cpg side you know you're dealing with uh from uh qsr national chains stuff um fine dining chains and even processors and uh you know you kind of take those same attributes and uh, move them over to the cpg side because if you're if you're innovating and trying to uh, build a product for a customer, you have to think about the cost. You have to think about the ingredients and uh, you know, because this is going to be on a a mass scale, you know, um, with, you may think penny pennies on the dollar doesn't matter, but uh, when someone's buying millions upon millions of pounds of product, yeah, those pennies start adding up pretty quick. Do you have, do you have a preference for one side of the business versus the other? I, um, I say to uh, it's funny cause we always joke, uh, you know, I always said I'd want to go back on the restaurant side and probably spend one, one evening doing it and then be like, okay, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I, so I like the, uh, I like the flexibility of the, um, R and D side, <laughs> you know, I'm, I was always one that loved traveling and, um, you know, even though I look at, you know, restaurant side, you have the long hours, you know, how that can go. And then, um, you know, holidays, you're always working evenings, weekends. Well, at the end of the day on the R and D side, yeah, you're traveling, you're working a lot of hours, especially being on the road. But at the end of the day, you're 99.9% of the time home on the weekends. And you're, you're, um, you're also off on the holidays and then the benefits of, uh, you know, traveling and things like that. So I, I love the R and D side and it's, it's every day is a different day and I have no idea what, what the following week will bring. That's the, that's the beauty of it. So share with our listeners, some of the projects you've worked on and some of the, you know, some of the successes, Nick, that, uh, that you've been particularly proud of. 
you know, we, um, from it, from, you know, as simple as a, uh, a chicken sandwich, you know, um, you do, you work a uh, year and a half to two years on a, uh, to help uh, build a, build a chicken sandwich for a customer. And then next thing you know, that chicken sandwich seems uh, very simple to everyone, but at the end of the day, that chicken sandwich may be millions upon millions of people, uh, daily, you know? So you, you see the benefit of that, uh, going through and especially when you're working with, uh, customers on a national chain level, cause that's predominantly what I, uh, am, um, national account chef for. So is also seeing the menus and when you go out to eat at, uh, some of the chain restaurants, you can, you, you can see your, your work, you know, Hey, that was one of my white paper concepts. I, I showed them and they, you know, took, took the lead on it, took the idea and maybe made a spin on it. But at the end of the day, you had some, a little bit of say, so in, um, uh, helping them put that on the menu. Yeah. It's the scale thing, right? Instead of a restaurant feeding a hundred people, you might be feeding <laughs> a hundred thousand or even millions with that, uh, innovation that you did there. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm from a fine dining aspect and, you know, some, some things I, I make these days are just uh, plain and simple. And, uh, you know, the fine dining, um, I've missed that aspect, but that end of the day, if I'm still making people happy and putting, you know, food in people's mouths as little as, you know, it could be as simple as a, help developing a pancake, but Hey, that pancake is going into so many people's mouths a day, you know, and you just see the, the benefit from, um, helping your company maintain, um, production schedules and volumes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So any failures that uh, you're able to share with our listeners or interesting stories? <laughs> failures, you know, I, um, there's been uh, multiple, uh, multiple times because any, any time you're in your career, there's also failures and it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, even though it's a, it's a failure, you, you learn from that. Um, there was one time we worked on a, a project with a, a customer and, you know, we were on say the hundredth revision. And at the end of the day, the, the gold standard product we had showed them before is a totally different product, but it's not up to us to make that decision. It's up to the customer to tell us what they want. And we just have to uh, focus and stay in line. And at the end of the day say, Hey, this is still our, this is still part of our product portfolio. It's not what we showed you before, but at the end of the day, if we, if we sell it, we sell it to you, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. So you kind of take the, um, the projects that may not go as well as you thought, and just kind of regroup and talk about them and uh, discuss what went wrong and how to uh, how to overcome those. 100 revisions, that's incredible. What is that about? Is that uh, the customer coming back and saying, no, it's uh, too spicy, no, it's not spicy enough, now it's too salty, now we gotta change the cost structure. What, you know, what causes 100 revisions? So it's a uh, part of that, uh, all of that actually, especially internally with the customer. Then once you uh, once you get get a product that internally the customer likes, you know they'll go through taste panels or uh, surveys and and things like that. So that can throw a whole new ball in the game. You know once you've been on that that many revisions and it goes to a market test or a taste panel and they get feedback and maybe it doesn't test as well as they thought it would test. Well then you're back to the drawing board again. 
you know, making revisions. Yeah. I'm here with Nick Landry, who is a professional chef and innovator currently with Southeastern Mills. Nick, one of the one of the interesting studies that came out recently showed that over a four-year period, uh, this was done by McKinsey, the big consulting company, and they tracked consumer packaged goods, food items over a four-year period and said what was left on the shelves and that uh, companies had launched as new products. And after four years, they found out that only one out of four products were still on the shelves. And it just shows you what the risks are involved with uh, food and CPG innovation. Do you have any thoughts on, on how companies can better manage this? You know, I, th- I think it's looking at uh, the products on the shelf and and judging, especially what area of the, of the uh, store you want to play in. You know, uh, we see it a lot with um, with our products as well. You know, there are so many products out there. You go down the condiment aisle, there are hundreds upon thousands of different condiments, and it's what's gonna um, what's gonna seclude you from all the others and make yours your shine. You know, um, and I think it all goes back to how you introduce the product, uh, the marketing behind it, and um, you know the sales pitch. You know, a lot of people are fighting for space on the uh, on the um, shelf floor. You know, and it's all up to slotting fees and everything else. When you think you're the the category leader, that just means you're going to probably pay a little bit more for add more product on the shelf. You know, and I've also seen products that may may not do so well in, in uh, the grocery store on the shelf, but then <laughs> they're actually sold on e-commerce or you know on the online store of the companies, and they're they're drawing volume from there. So it, I think there's a there's a benefit, um, even though something fails. I think there is there's a place for it. You know. Mm-hmm. So what do you think some of the hardest challenges are that uh, R&D folks typically run into in this business? I think the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge is possibly ingredients. You know, sometimes uh, they're a lot harder to find than you, than you think. And, um, you know, developing, developing products with, uh, you know, suppliers and finding the right supplier that can um, supply you with those ingredients. Um, because at the end of the day, sometimes you may need, um, say it's a, say a customer is wanting a, you know, a ricotta uh, pepper, a Peruvian pepper. Well, what what does that what does that volume look like? You know, how say, you know, you need 500, 500 pounds of that particular powder. Well, then you have to do the research and find what ingredient supplier is uh, supplying that particular pepper and uh, the way you need it. Is it is it a dried product? Is it a puree? So I think the biggest challenge is ingredient sourcing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it and it's uh, it's only more of a challenge, right? Because the trends and the fads in the food industry just seem to be coming left and right. If anything, I think change in the food industry is happening faster than we saw ten or twenty years ago. What? How do you, how do you in your position and how does your team and your company, how do you, how do you manage all that change? How do you, how do you figure out what's a fad, what's a trend and how are we going to deal with all this? It's funny you say that because our, our food industry, uh, this day and age is changing. Just as you said, it, it, it's crazy. It's kind of blows my mind a lot, how crazy it's, uh, changing. And, you know, you just have to keep, keep up and, 
<laughs> we do. Um, I do a lot of diner rounds with customers, ideations, touring food cities, uh, you know, picking the um, the trendy food cities, especially where the the smaller smaller chains may be in the test markets. Can you name a few of those trendy cities? Uh, you know, typically, uh, especially on the West Coast, a big uh, trendy city, obviously, is Los Angeles. A lot of smaller restaurants start out there and then and grow, and then you got uh, New York, Chicago. So kind of, you know, the bigger cities. Um, mm. And then you also see these uh, food halls these days. I mean, there's food halls all over the place. And it's kind of uh, <laughs> whoever came up with that idea is, is a genius. You know, people that want to start out in a restaurant and have something unique but can't pay, you know, the premium price as a brick and mortar. They can rent out a space for you know, a year just to build up their name and then move into a brick and mortar. So it's kind of looking at all those and seeing the, the con concepts and trends out there and uh, just going from there. You know, we, uh, you know, you the, the easy part is being the follower. The hard part is being the innovator and the person that's going to come out and break through that, that new thing that no one ever would uh, come out with, you know. So, so when you, when you uh, sample something for the first time or experience a flavor or a food or a spice for the first time at one of these trendy food cities, as you say, what makes you decide, okay, this is the one we ought to chase versus, ah, oh, this is interesting, but we're not going to mess with it? Well, I think once we, uh, once we see that particular trend on a restaurant or like a flavor profile, we kind of go back to the drawing board because... At the end of the day, from a chef standpoint, you're you're full of sales, you're full of marketing, you're full of culinary, all this stuff. So at the end of the day, you have to back up your back up what you've seen. So from a chef standpoint, once we see something we we like and enjoy, we go back to the drawing board and use sources like Data Central or Technomics and see where that trend falls along, um, you know, the trend scale of things from a uh, food service and national account uh, standpoint, you know, so you kind of, you kind of see there where they see the trend going and if it's going to die or if it's going to be here in the next uh, year or, or 10 years. So you kind of use that as a base as well to build your, uh, build your case. So here's something that, you know, some people would say it's a fad, but I think most people are starting to believe it's a trend, which is the whole plant-based replacement for animal protein. Um, and with the work you're doing at Southeastern Mills for your customers, are you seeing that uh, cause you to have to innovate and do things that, you know, whether it's flavors or condiments complementing a plant-based protein differently or better than you would with a traditional protein? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've seen it a little bit, and I'm not sure how much we're uh, – we're getting involved with it now, but um, I know with the uh, the times changing, and we have to, you know, we have to adapt. You know, uh, you know, say if we're working on a um, a pancake or or a waffle or even any kind of dry mix, um, you know, it's um, it's crazy to think, you know. But we'll talk about, oh, uh, what kind of protein are we going to put in it today? Is it is it going to be bug protein? Is it going to be plant based protein? You kind of joke about it, but at the end of the day, this this is what this is the new new trend and what's going to be here in the next ten years. So let's let's start thinking about it now. 
So we've had uh, many discussions and looking at different proteins. Um, and as the company grows, we'll have to uh, we'll have to adapt as well. So, Nick, looking back on your career, when you've been innovating, where do you think you've had the most freedom to innovate? Has it been on the restaurant chef side or on the R&D side? I think on the uh, the R&D side, just because uh, I find I have a lot uh, more access to tons of ingredients that I've never had access before. You know, in a restaurant, <laughs> you'll... Uh, it's a little bit different. You're working on menus and, um, you know, you're, you may have a, a select supply of ingredients, but, you know, I, whenever sometimes, you know, jokingly, uh, I'll say, Oh, somebody wants me to make a barbecue spice at home. And I'm like, well, I need a Worcestershire powder. They're like, Worcestershire powder. What is that? I'm like, it's dehydrated Worcestershire sauce. Well, where do you get that? You know, well, you can't just buy that at any grocery store, you know, or it's orange juice powder. You know, you have access to so many different cool ingredients. And it's like, a, I mean, it's like a, a kid in a candy store, you know. <laughs> That's the fun part of your job. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, uh, there's challenges with all those ingredients, you know, and I, uh, have the pleasure to work with a lot of food scientists and you know eventually i would like to get a little bit more involved with food scientists but you learn so much from a food scientist you know and with our our career the way it's uh, been going lately there's so much collaboration with food scientists and uh, culinary professionals mm -hmm. so so nick you mentioned uh you know having to go through a hundred iterations with one of your clients and you mentioned some of the lead times involved in the total length of these projects. And on, on the CPG side, which you're on now, what have you seen as typical average concept to consumption life cycles across, uh, across the business? I'm going to say average probably about 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes you can get as far as 24 months, you know, a lot of, uh, People have their calendars uh, made out for years, and whether it's their LTOs or menu, they have these uh, <clears throat> deadlines for those. Now, if you're dealing with a, um, a processor with a larger scale, whether it's a chicken processor, uh, a seafood processor, or even, um, you know, kettle cook operations, because we do a huge amount of business on the industrial side, you know, I think those are, those are pushed a little bit uh, quicker you know, cause they're, they're, uh, in the retail space or they're doing it for a, a, um, food service distributor. So I think those timelines get a little bit more quicker. It could be, you know, 12 months, you know, somewhere around there. But, um, you know, a lot of times the uh, lead times come into place and, um, when companies are going to launch the uh, product. So it, uh, I'd say about an average of 12 to 18 months. And do you ever get pressure either internally from your company or from your customers to compress that down? Oh, yes. Yeah. Especially with uh, lead times, uh, customers, uh, you know, um, customers are demanding and we, we try to do what's uh, best for uh, both parties. And, you know, at the end of the day, we meet in the middle and because we uh, we both need a win at it. So um, you see it uh, on both ends. 
So one of the questions we like to ask on the podcast is, you know, what advice would you give to a, a new person starting their career in this business? And maybe you could comment on that, Nick, uh, on both sides, both the restaurant and the CPG side. Well, my, my biggest thing is, uh, is, uh, networking. You know, I'm a huge, uh, huge networker, get involved with organizations, um, you know, and, uh, just get out there and meet people. There's been multiple times, uh, chefs are contacted me on how do I get on this side of the business? And, uh, I kind of explained to them my story, how I did it. Uh, you know, I just kind of slipped upon it. At the end of the day, you have to keep knocking on doors and, uh, just, Sell, sell yourself to uh, to companies. You know, I uh, I'm about to uh, start my second uh, second term on the board of directors for the Research Chefs Association. I'm <laughs> been a proud member of that and highly stand behind that organization, especially on our end of the industry. Um, IFT, the Institute of Food Technologies. There's all these um, organizations to get involved with and just network and and meet people and go to uh, go to events that are in your area. Uh, we just we just hosted an event in uh, Chicago um, last week with uh, Vienna Beef. You know, we had 35 people there. So it's you know going around, asking uh, you know introducing yourself, exchanging cards, and uh, just building a uh, portfolio for yourself. Yeah, RCA gets a really good reputation for helping early career folks uh, get launched into their careers and I know they've got a mentoring program and do a lot with students um, have have you seen the benefits of that with your work at RCA yeah we do um, we um, I uh, I also help out a lot at our uh, the um, culinary art school that I went to and just go give talks and I try to go out and talk to as many people as I can you know at the end of the day in my early career, I was wanting people to do that for me and always said once I got back from a professional standpoint, if there was anything I would do in this industry and it's going to give back to the younger generation because that's that's who's going to be leading our industry here. You know, we're all, you know, uh, whether whether you're on the retirement scale or, you know, getting close to retiring or far along in your career. We need to keep our organization growing and keep our industry growing because uh, food food is going to be here forever. You know, food makes puts a smile on people's faces and food gets people together. Yep. So in this industry where change is happening at a faster and faster pace, for companies looking to innovate, what what advice would you give to them, Nick? Well, I mean, I guess innovation, innovation as a company is all over the board. It's not just in, in uh, food in the innovation, you know, at the end of the day, manufacturing has to be innovative. You know, if you have older equipment <laughs> or times have changed and there's a new PC equipment out, you need to be ahead of the game and uh, to help with your efficiencies and things like that. So as a company, you have to all collaborate. Um, Southeastern Mills, we pride ourselves on our, our culture and collaboration of all, all departments. And, you know, sometimes we have a lot of, lot of people in the, in the room discussing things, but we get a lot done because everybody has a little bit of different input. And especially with, uh, you know, reg regulations constantly come out on, on certain things with, uh, you know, 
food regulations. So regulatory has to be innovative. So it kind of goes, uh, kind of goes all over the place. You're obviously proud of your company, Southeastern Mills, and you touched on culture and the culture of innovation, which gets talked about quite a bit. So can you give any examples of, you know, Southeastern Mills culture and what they do to try to bring out innovation across the whole team? So we're a um, we're a uh, high performance workplace uh, HPWP. It's a uh, it, it was brought to the company um, years ago, and it's just uh, bringing brings people uh, <laughs> brings people together more, and uh, you know, using everybody's um, capabilities and trusting trusting their employees, and you know, each one of us were hard for a particular reason. And um, they pride ourselves on uh, on hiring us, and we just—it's—it's it's very it's a very collaborative organization, and um, you know we bring that to customers, and especially in presentations, we talk about our our culture. So it's a it's a it's one huge benefit. I I love working for uh, Southeastern Mills. That's terrific. Culture is everything. So so Nick, before we go into wrap up. Any other advice uh, or words of wisdom or interesting concepts you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I um, from a from a culinary standpoint, you know, 15 years ago, I never knew about this industry, and it's one that um, I'm highly involved with now. And it's, you know, you got to uh, you got you you have to work together and work with your food scientists and your sales team, and um, you know let your customers know you're out there to support them. You're, you're not, uh, you're not picking battles with them. And, you know, even though you may have your differences at the end of the day, you want to come to a conclusion that way, all parties win. And, uh, that's my, uh, that's my biggest takeaway from, uh, this, uh, this industry. Good advice. And, uh, yeah, good advice. Trust, trust each other and partner with your customers, I guess. Yes. Exactly. And uh, just uh, you got to be passionate in what you do and uh, stay involved. And, you know, social media is uh, we, we can always talk about social media, whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. But as we as we uh, talked earlier on food trends or fads, you know, social media is huge these days. And that's what, uh, you know, I take advantage of that. You know, mm-hmm. I limit myself to a a couple of them, but uh, I'm very active and, and I see the, uh, the benefits from that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank my guest today, Nick Landry, who is the culinary development chef at Southeastern Mills. Nick, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.